So go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And we're beginning in Romans 8. Um, this is a review of lesson 8. And we're beginning at just such a great, beautiful verse. So many people love this verse and quote from it. And uh, we'll get there. And as we've been anticipating getting to this passage, I, I've known that we're going to have the end of eight together with the beginning of nine. And there's a, there's a challenge in both of those because, you, as you know from doing your study, there's a huge shift that happens from what Paul's been talking about to what he kind of shifts to his emotional shift and just the theology of everything that's going on. So I want to I'm going to ask you a couple of things um, when we begin right now. And uh, today in my talk, my hope is to answer a couple of questions that are right there in the scripture. Number one, does God really work all things together for good? And I'm going to emphasize the word on good because I feel like we have a disparate view of what good might be from what God's version of good is. And so we kind of call that into question. And number two, heavier probably, does God predestine to hate some and for others to be loved? Is that what God is all about? Is that what this passage has been teaching us? And we want to talk about that. And so as we move into that, hang in there with me. The, the passage itself has been a bit of an emotional roller coaster. And so I'm deliberate in how I crafted this message today because it's a bit of an emotional roller coaster as well. And so we're going to open up with something that I probably wouldn't normally open up with, but I want us to go into this mode. And I want you to bring into your mind right now something that I might not ever ask you to do, but I'm going to ask you to imagine what the worst thing that could possibly happen to you or a loved one might be. And just let that come into your mind. You don't have to hover there and meditate on it. I'm not going to move in on that. But I want you to just to click that into your brain. And most of us can imagine that quickly and don't even want to go there and think about it. It's not fun. But I want you just to park it somewhere inside your mind and be willing to think about that and just hold on to that thought. And again, trust me as we move forward, because this is going to be a deep, some deep thoughts and some heavy thoughts to, to begin with. And I promise we're going to bring it all together in the end. Scott and Janet Willis were driving behind a truck when a piece of metal flew off the truck and punctured their gas tank and it caused their minivan to explode. They escaped but six of their children were burned to death in the fire. Johnny Erickson Tata was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident when she was 17. And because of that accident, she's had a powerful ministry with disabled people. In her 60s, she's had breast cancer. And in her response, she said, I've had a ministry to disabled people for years, but now I have a ministry to people with cancer. And now she's recovering from COVID, if you follow her story, and she's continuing her ministry. And that family, Scott and Janet Wells, were interviewed, and they've been able to say on this side of that tragedy that they can see the sovereignty of God in spite of what God allowed to happen in their life. And we sit there and we gasp at horror of what they must have gone through. And even that is clouding even the thoughts that we're having in our own mind of the worst possible thing that can happen. And you can imagine they experienced it, right? And yet both the Willises, Scott and Janet and Johnny Erickson, have been able to say on this side of what God allowed in their life, that God did work it together for good. 
And not that they've got all the answers and not that they escaped the pain of those moments and the discouragement, but they are seeing the sovereignty of God. And the idea that all things work together for good, though, isn't exclusively a biblical saying. All religions, even secular beliefs, have as an aspect of their worldview that everything's going to work out for good. The idea that in the end, everything's going to work and it, it's going to be all okay isn't just a loose religious belief. It's actually a grasp at finding meaning and purpose in a world that you and I all know is capricious. Where one child is born healthy, the next is born with a fatal disease. Where a tornado sweeps through a city, leaving hundreds of homes level and others completely untouched. The world is harsh. A tsunami wipes out a village. A plague kills millions. Evil leaders wage genocidal war. And we long for meaning in it all. We have to have meaning. We have to at least have hope that all this isn't for nothing. Without that hope, then what is there? And I would suggest to you that because we long for meaning and we ache for meaning, that meaning is available, that God provided for us what we need in this world that he's created. On a physical level, we need oxygen and God provided it. We need sunlight and God provided it. We need friendship and God brings it. We need food, we need shelter, God provides. We need meeting. Is God gonna provide that? We need hope, won't God provide that? And so after pouring out his heart about the suffering in this world, the anguish that we feel waiting for our adoption, which is the completion of our sanctification, Paul acknowledges that our sorrow and our longing is so overwhelming at times that we need an interpreter just to get the words understood. That interpreter, of course, is the Holy Spirit who intercedes for us with groanings and speaks on our behalf, thankfully, in keeping with God's will. Paul assures us of something that every other religion claims and every worldview teaches. But why is what Paul says next actually true? If every worldview teaches this to some level, all things work together for good eventually. If every religion, even the cults, eventually come down to it's all going to work out to good, some version of that. Why is what Paul says actually true? Why is what he says as true as the law of gravity or the law of one sock coming out? When you put two pairs in, set, and I got one. How is that true? I don't know. Mysteries of the universe. We'll ask God someday. While what world religions offer is wishful thinking, and it's anchored in nothing more than the wisp of breath that spoke the empty words, what Paul is actually saying is true. Why? Because it's anchored in a past reality as much as it is tethered to a future hope. And in that tension of that tether, anchored in past reality and tethered to a hope that we cannot yet see because what is hope if you can see it, we live on that tension, okay? 
So all things work together for good. It's just six words, actually four in the Greek, but six words pulled out of context, not only out of God's holy word, but out of his perfect heart and his perfect will. If we just say that, all things work together for good. And we nod and smile in agreement when our friends or secular friends or our quasi-religious friends say, well, it's all going to just work together in the end. But do you notice that when people say that, that there's a body language that goes with it? Have you noticed that? Oh, they're all just going to work out in the end. The hands go up like this. Watch people say that. What does it mean when hands go up like this? It means, I don't know. So I want us to think about the reality that we can say it like this. Not that, that we would to scare people. <laughs> all things work together for good. Because why? We have the rest of the verse. And the rest of the verse wouldn't make any sense either if we didn't have the reality that we're anchored in the truth of that's what's happened and we're tethered to a hope that is to come. Amen? All right. So as Christians, as women who are connecting in this world with our friends and our family who do this with their hands, oh, it's all going to work together for good. We can move in and say, it is. <laughs> it is. And we can assure them. And that we don't have to cite that verse as some kind of a little Hallmark card platitude. Because those six words are meaningless. They're gibberish without the next 12. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Six and then the 12. You've got to have them together. So why is this true? All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of the answer before we move into the why. And I'm going to do it in kind of a question. Have you ever heard of someone saying, if someone tells you who they are, believe them? You've probably heard it more accurately. If someone shows you who they are, believe them. Because someone could tell you who they are in a sense. But that's not going to be true until they've shown you. And we, we often hear in, you know, counseling or therapy with people like, okay, stop with the negative relationships. You know, if someone shows you who they are, you should believe them. It's because you keep on getting yourself involved in unhealthy relationships. They are showing themselves who they are. And on the other side of that, if someone shows themselves to who, be who they are in the good sense, you should also believe them. They have shown you who they are. And so why is this true? Paul goes right into the answer, and it comes back to that reality. Has God shown who he is? Yes. Then we should believe him. That's why we can say, okay, this is true. I don't understand it. It doesn't feel good in the emotional sense of good. All things work together for good, and so I'm going to feel good about it. It's not like that. Verse 29 in chapter 8. Because... Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's got this. He's got a plan. And the idea of being conformed to the image of his son, I think we, we, we hopefully see that as in a sense of being pressed in, like what a conforming image would be if I'm pressing into a mold, I'm being pressed in and I'm conformed then to that image. And Paul's going to get to this idea of a mold and molding in the next few verses when he talks about the potter and the clay. But this idea is there with it. I'm being conformed to the image of his son. 
which is a package deal. Because if you're truly going to be conformed to the image of his son, then every little part counts is I'm pressed into that mold of who Jesus is, right? You know how it is. You've made an ornament or a craft or something like that, and you bought the little mold, and you pressed in the dough, or you pressed in the project, or maybe even um, cake and cookies at home and baking, and you're, you're pouring in the dough. If it doesn't quite get into all the nooks and crannies of that, then when it comes out, it's not quite right. So we want to be fully conformed into the image of his son, which is why earlier he said, if we suffer with him, because that's part of being conformed to the image of his son, not the, not the pleasant part, but that's part of the package. So what does it mean then that God foreknew and predestined? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Some teach, this is important. Actually, before I go into this more, this is, this is important, but it's not essential. Can I just say it like that? This is important, but it's not essential. It's going to become important to you if you're engaging with somebody who uh, might interpret this, this scripture differently. And it, because of the way they interpret it, it presses them into a logical flow of what should happen next in terms of what they believe about who God is. And uh, so I'm going to move in on that. But this isn't something that's essential. We have brothers and sisters in our Christian faith who disagree on how to interpret this. And they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ because they have together the important aspects of who Jesus is. So some teach, we choose God. We choose God. That God looked through time down the corridors of time is even kind of written in some of the writings about this view. That God looked down through the corridors of time because he can. And he saw who would believe in him. So he saw ahead of time. And so he predestined them to be conformed. He like, oh, you're going to pick me. So I'll predestine you to conform. So God's looking up and over through time. He sees you, Kathy, that you picked Jesus, yay you. And so he's conformed you because you initiated the pick. You picked him. All right. So in this view, we are the ones who caused our salvation because of our faith. Okay. God saw that. So he foreknew that. It's really saying more like God foresaw that. All right. This is what we call like a classical Arminian view. American Baptist, United Methodist, uh, Wesleyan, Pentecostal churches, Nazarenes, they all hold to this, this view of this, this passage. Others teach God chose us. God chose us. God foreknew who he would love to be his people. So he set their destiny for them. So for new is really for loved. This is a classic Calvinist view. So Presbyterians, Reformed Baptists, United Church of Christ. That's the, that's the view that they hold. I believe that that's a false dilemma and a false, what we call dichotomy in logic and speaking. That we're, we're presented with only two views and you gotta pick one. I, I think there's a problem with one. And there's a problem with the other. And so if there's problems, then it's not that I say, well, I don't know. This is how the Bible works. And I don't understand it. Again, I think we need to avoid as Christians doing the whole hand thing. Like, well, I don't know. Just all we know. It kind of works out. Maybe for the Trinity, I'll allow that. <laughs> that is legitimately challenging. But for, for this particular view, um, we're going to just, you know, keep it as as we can know, because here, here's what I believe on this. I believe that this verse is saying that God knew in the sense of loved ahead of time. It has nothing to do with God determining our future or deciding that we'd choose God. 
That Greek word is pro, prognosko, and it literally does mean to know before. But in the Jewish way, the Semitic languages, Jewish way of writing, to know in, in a loving way is what this means. Like Adam knew his wife, you know, no, that's the same word. It means the same thing. God knew, like he loved us ahead of time. And he'd planned that we'd be conformed to the image of his son. He he knew that, but he, he God created a, a, a possibility for all of us to deny him. It's just that God has what we would call, in this view, middle knowledge. So God knows every single possible outcome that could possibly be in any world that he would have created. For example, if he created a world where gravity caused everything to go up instead of down, then everything would be like that in that particular world. This world is the world that he chose that gravity pulls everybody down. Uh, if everybody in, in the world was um, had their noses on the side of their head you know, and their ears on the front of their face. That would be the world he created. That's how it would work out. And then everything would be organized. So God knows no matter what he did, every single possible outcome that he could have made, but this is the one he did make. He knows what would have happened. He knows what could have happened. I know. <laughs> it's a lot. This view is, uh, would be called the Molinist view. So Arminian, Calvinist, Molinist. So M-O-L-I-N. And uh, the philosopher, the theologian who uh, started writing about this, his name is Louis Molina. I want to lift it up later. I'll give you some links and information. It's very helpful. And it helps us to not have this false dichotomy of just, I only can have this or I can have that. It's like, no, if we can actually have this. And we'll go into it a little bit more in chapter nine. All right. So why did God do this? Why did he conform us into the image of his son? So that he could increase his family. So that... His son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So Paul then teaches what we can think of as an unbreakable chain of actions that all end in the glorification along with Christ. So in the same way that God has made good on his promise uh, to bring forth Jesus Christ, we can be confident that he'll bring those he loves to be glorified as well. And this isn't those he loves because I love you over here and I do not love you even though I know we're going to get to that last verse and it kind of sounds like that, but that's not what happens. All right. Here's what you, those who love God and are called according to his purpose can know for certain. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All right. So is there anything that can stop the plan of God? No, because this is locked in because it's God's doing. Every single thing on this list is something that he and only he can do. Do you have, you have any control at all uh, about being predestined? No, because once, once you made that decision, you're part of being predestined. Does, did you have anything to do with being justified? Did you make yourself righteous? No, you did not. Um, are you going to have anything to do with being glorified? No, you will not. God's going to do all that. What a big, huge theological term that's not in this list. Sanctified. Sanctified. Why? You have to engage with that. You have to be a part of that. You can't be out there living a life of crime and, and, and continue on a path of sanctification. So is there anything that can stop the plan of God? Paul asks, if there's one thing that could be said about these things, here it is. What then shall we say about these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? <laughs> what can you say about this? That's what you can say. 
There's nothing that's going to break that chain. Again, go back to all things working together for good. That just saying that is like a Hallmark card if it's just those words. Paul is saying something so big that we must feel completely overwhelmed by it in the sense that there's just no way to doubt this. And what is he so sure of? Why is he so certain? Remember that Paul is in the middle of encouraging believers who are weary of the suffering and the trials of the world. So we're getting the only true hope possible in light of the reality of what we face on earth. We're getting meaning in all of this. That's why it's all going to work together for good is just a Hallmark card with the hands and all that for people who don't have that anchor and truth of who Christ is and what God's done and it will do. We're, we're getting the only true hope possible in light of the reality of what we face on earth. And we can have hope because God has known us, has loved us. We can have hope because God does have a plan for us. We can trust God will make good on his plans because he's made good on every other promise ever spoken and everything God ever did and everything God ever gave was for our ultimate good. What did God give? What was the ultimate gift? Well, I think you all know it. You probably memorized it when you were a kid. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. This is the way he loved the world. I'm going to give you my only son. And that is exactly where Paul leads us next. Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all, how will he also, along with him, Jesus, he already gave us, freely give us all things. He gave us like the big ticket winner. Like he skipped the whole, all the rounds that go up to the showcase showdown on prices, right? Where you win the RV and you get your house recarpeted and you get the paint and you get the trip and all that. He skipped over all the bidding on the little watch and the bidding on the garbage disposal and all the stuff he didn't really want. He skipped over that. Boom. You get my son. And so guess what else you get? All the other parting gifts are yours as well. The problem is when we start thinking of, prob of uh, parting gifts as the good stuff, like in our definition of good. But guess what parting gifts also mean? The package deal that it comes with? The suffering. <laughs> That's what that means. And so we get our hopes set on, I got Jesus, yes I do. I got Jesus, how about you? And then everything's gonna be great. We're cheering for it, right? But reality is I got Jesus. <laughs> oh Lord, I got Jesus. It's all gonna work out in the end. This is hard. And that's a better mindset because then you're not fooling anybody because oftentimes people accept Christ as their savior, raise their hand, and it's kind of a bait and switch. They were promised, you know, <laughs> They were promised you accept Jesus as your savior and everything's going to be great. And we kind of emphasize the abundant life and the glorified life and everything's going to be great. And then they get him in a sense. And then everything isn't. And they're like, well, either I misunderstood or this is not good. I don't, I pick a different religion. And really people should just be more honest and pick a different religion. If you really just want that kind of life, let's just at least be honest about it. Right. Okay. So three questions and three competent answers Paul moves into next. Who will bring a charge against us? Who will condemn us? Who will separate us? And we'll begin with this one. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's certain that no charge could ever be brought against us. Why? Because God's the one who made us right. You don't bring charges against somebody who's righteous. There's no need for that. 
Who do you bring into court? Somebody who's wronged you. Who do you have complaints against? Who are you going to put charges against? In reality, in real life, just think about court system. You're going to do that with somebody who's done something wrong. You bring charges against them, right? And Paul's saying, who's going to do that? <laughs> Rhetorical question. No one. <laughs> because why? Because I'm so good now? No. Because God's the one who justified. Who is the one who will condemn? All right. How certain is it that we will not be condemned? Is anyone going to condemn? The only reason we would be condemned, listen, is if we had sinned and deserved death. Hold on. Think about that. The only reason that we would be condemned is if we sin and we deserve death. Wait, uh, we did sin. We did deserve death. Oh, but Christ is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God. I just inserted the word seated as a you know reminder just to keep all the verbs flowing. Who is seated at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. Oh, Christ died. I can't be condemned. I was justified. Christ died. It took my condemnation. Condemnation that God already justified me for, so there I have no sin. Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. And I love how Paul adds the more than that issue there. More than that, he was also raised, who was seated at the right hand of God, who's also interceding for us. Okay, well, a doubtful, an anxious person might be thinking, all that is good. God justified me. Jesus is keeping me from being condemned. But what about the love, man? What about the love? I don't know what it is, but so many of us really struggle with accepting love of God and love from God. And Paul anticipates this doubt as well. And this is that inner accuser who might see trouble or distress or anything of those things listed as a sign that God must not love us. Saved? That's huge. Awesome, God. Justified? Whoa, that's big. That's theological. I can kind of put that out there and not touch it because it's this big theological idea. Glorified? I imagine that's going to come someday. But love? That's close. That's personal. I know about love. I don't need to go to a commentary to learn about what love is. I feel it or I sense that I have it or I don't have it. We've experienced it. Justified, I got to have a definition for that. Sanctified, I need more. Glorified, what is that? Love, that's that's close. That's personal. So Paul moves in on that. He's so sweet and he just gets it. And he asks that question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, trouble, distress, per persecution, fame, uh, fame. Well, that probably is a good one too. Famine, <laughs> nakedness, danger, or sword. And he recalls a psalm that cried out to God when the people were feeling especially picked on by God and complained that their situation was not only bad, but that they were going through serious trouble because of God. He said, as it is written for your sake, as it is written for your sake all day, we encounter death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And you're like, well, that's a harsh verse. It is, especially when you realize they're talking about God. God's doing this to them. That's what the whole psalm was about, if you read through that, that, that day of that lesson. So that might make anyone doubt God's love. It's not the kind of verse you're going to find on a mug. You're not going to stick that one on your t-shirt, unless you're on my website. Oh, my God. <laughs> of course you do. I 
I'm going to have a mug that says that. You're saying we can count our death all day long. We were considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Yeah, you can order those for me later. Like the cute little fluffy sheep. Yep. <laughs> yep, cute little fluffy sheep. Uh, wait, there's more. <laughs> you have a pillow also. <laughs> all right. You can put that on your t-shirt. You can put that on your pillow. You should, because why? Because it reminds you that God can handle it. God's got this. And you might really feel like you're getting picked on by God. But who can separate us from the love of God? No one can condemn us, right? Who will bring a charge against us? No one. Who will condemn us? No one. Who will separate us? No one. Nothing. All right? No. In all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. All these things. All right. The things that we can't understand that are big and they're out there, the things that are close to home and we feel like, I don't know if God loves me. I mean, I know in my head, but I don't feel it in my heart. Paul's moving in on that and saying, hey, he's got this and he's not going to take his love from you. So I love the connection between victory and love here. Underline those in your Bible. Draw a line if you can from that one verse where it's the victory and this idea of love right there. Why? Because Christ's victory over death is the greatest act of love. Mm -hmm. He went to that cross out of love. John 3, 16, back to the love of God, who did not spare even his own son. Remember, Jesus was accused of abolishing the law, and he told everyone, I did not come to abolish the law to fulfill it. And in a kind of a way, Jesus has also been falsely connected with abolishing suffering. Get saved, you know how pro prosperous living in your best life now. But the reality is, in some way, in the same way that Jesus came not to abolish but to fulfill the law, he also came not to abolish but to fulfill suffering. Why? Because these are the two biggest issues that plague us. The law represents everything that we think we could do right, the legalism that we do struggle with, even if we're not religious. We still find people who aren't religious saying, well, I'm a good person. That's the law. By what measure are you not a good person, right? So, so Christ didn't come to abolish that. He came to fulfill it. Why? Because he is a good person. He truly was. He fulfilled everything. Every single jot and tittle, every aspect of the law was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He did not come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. Now move on to suffering. Did Jesus come to abolish suffering? No. What did he come to do? He did come to fulfill it. He came to, to move through that. Why? so that we could be conformed to his image. And if he hadn't fulfilled the law, that would be a broken image to be conformed to. If he hadn't fulfilled suffering, that would be a broken image. He wouldn't get us. He wouldn't understand. He would have just been good. Capital G, all caps, G-O-O-D, good. But he didn't really suffer, so he doesn't really get what we're going through. But Jesus not only suffered, he ultimately suffered. No suffering that anybody else in this world could ever fathom, although we think we could, if you go back to the Willis story at the beginning. That is insane amount of suffering that they must have gone through, right? And so Jesus came not to abolish, but to fulfill the law, not to abolish, but to fulfill suffering. Why? 
to give it all meaning. <laughs> if Jesus hadn't fulfilled it, the law would be meaningless. Suffering. If Jesus hadn't fulfilled it, suffering would be what? Meaningless. Be meaningless. Throw up your hands. Do it like this. Oh. <laughs> you know. Listen to what it says next. As Paul's enthusiasm and sense of urgency, we, we grasp, he's just building and building. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, heavenly rulers, things to come, or things that are present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Paul has just finished saying, who will bring a charge? No one. Who will condemn? No one. Who will separate us from the love of God? No one. And I'm sure there's somebody out there thinking, well, what if God does this? Paul's like, I'm going to anticipate everything anyone can possibly ever think of because that's exactly what we do. When you're sitting there and you're listening to the preacher or maybe even listening to me right now, you're like, yeah, but what about love? <laughs> and Paul's like, okay, let me just cover my bases. And he does. I'm convinced nothing, no one, no how ever can separate us from the love of God. And chapter eight opened with, there is therefore now no condemnation and it ends with no separation. And he establishes those are both true because everything he taught in the middle of all of chapter eight, no condemnation, chapter eight, verse one, no separation, chapter eight, verse 39. You know, this reminded me of Psalm 139 in David's heart as David is telling in that Psalm how amazing God is. He says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and he's so beautiful and he's so poetic describing all this. If I settle on the far side of the sea, then there your hand will guide me. How precious to me are your thoughts, oh God. David goes on and on. How vast is the sum of them? If I were to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. And you read that song, you're like, David was like all about it. Like he was right dancing with joy before the Lord as he was writing that and thinking about how great and glorious God is. And then in the middle of his joy, in the middle of his awe and all of his amazement at just who God is in his life, you get the sense that David suddenly becomes aware and reminded of just how irreverent and ungodly the world is. And he explodes with a righteous, maybe self-righteous anger. And he says, if only you would slay the wicked, O oh God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I feel like Paul is kind of at the same point here. Like he's just said, oh, glorious God is and nothing can sub, sub, separate us and everything's great and God's got this and we're here. And then Paul shifts in a different theme and with different motives. I get the sense that Paul, at the peak of his praise about God and his plan and his love and his power, he's shaken back to earth. And this sad truth that he's been living with, this angst in his heart, this pain, that his own people are rejecting their Messiah. And if you love history like I do, you remember stories about the Civil War where brother and brother would fight against each other. Revolutionary War, same thing. Brother and brother would fight against each other. They would each pick sides and they would fight. And they were like, why? And all this war and this torment would happen and would break the mother's hearts and all the, all the anger and the violence and everything that came out for a cause 
And Paul is here too. He's like, it's breaking my heart. Who knows if his cousin or his mom or his dad or brothers or sisters or whoever Paul had in his family still were rejecting the Messiah, right? So he says, and he shifts, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. You could just feel him even weeping as he's having his friend write this all down. I'm not lying. My conscience assures me. And then he adds in the Holy Spirit because of the whole thing. And the other part of the verse where he says the groanings of the Holy Spirit. He says, in the Holy Spirit, this isn't just me. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And he doesn't stop there at deep sorrow. Most of us are willing to make a deal with God to get out of our own trouble. Right? Most of us, I can get ourselves into a pickle. And we're like, all right, God, if you get me out of this one, <laughs> I promise to go to church. Or I promise I'll always do this. Or I'll you know, make our deals with God. But listen to Paul's deal. Paul wishes he could make a deal with God to get his people out of their trouble. He doesn't make a deal about himself. He makes a deal on behalf of somebody else. What has Paul just assured all of us that we can know for certain? What did he really just say? Will we ever be separated from the love of Christ? No, never. Will anything ever separate us? No. And yet Paul says this, for I wish that I myself were accursed, cut off, which means what? Separated. He's just said nothing's going to separate us from the love of Christ. And he's like, maybe the exception, God. I'll, I'll be separated. He's got that much love and passion for the sake of my fellow people who are Israelites. I know it's not possible. I know nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. But if it meant that my people would know his love, I would go to hell for their cause. That's what he's saying. Wow. You know, Moses felt this kind of love and responsibility for his people. He said, yet now, God, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses had that passion. Jesus actually was the only one who not only loved this passionately, but listen, but was qualified and able to do it. Moses couldn't have blotted his name out of the book. Paul can't separate himself from the love of God. But you know who did separate himself from the love of God? Jesus did. He said, Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. Paul's heart is for the unsaved. Moses' heart was for the unsaved. Jesus' heart was for the unsaved too. But he's the only one who could do it. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because Jesus was the only one who can separate himself from the love of God, and he did it. And Paul now knows better. But at one time, he was as blind as they are. And he pauses here to remind everything, everyone where God's story began, that God selected out of all people on earth, one man, Abraham, through whom would come the Messiah. And he says that about the Jews, he says to them, belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship, the promises to them belong the patriarchs. From them, by humanist descent, came the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. And he brings this point to this culmination with this big, so be it, this big, Amen, to remind us of the truth. So what happened? Why, if they had access to all this blessing and all this to look forward to and the great privilege of bringing the Messiah into the world, why did they reject him? And Paul anticipates what some might say, it's God's fault. <laughs> and that's a common thought. I mean, 
If God is all knowing and he's all powerful and he's all loving and he's all faithful, then couldn't he have made it happen that his people, the chosen ones, would simply have chosen Jesus? Couldn't he have made that happen? And don't we wrestle along those same lines too? Why do people reject Jesus? Why do people who have every advantage still deny him? Why do people who have great intellect live in denial of the reality of God and every prophecy that was fulfilled by Jesus? Why do people in their pain reject instead of return to God, who is the greatest source of healing and hope that we could ever know? Is God at fault for all that? Simply put, no. It is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word will not return empty or unfulfilled. It will not fail. Maybe you're familiar with the verse that says God's word will not return void or God's word will not return empty. You probably heard that verse before. It's in Isaiah chapter 55, but listen to the verse in context, which is the compassion of God calling that his people would seek him. He says, right before he says this about, you know, my word not returning empty, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call on him while he is near. He says, in the same way that rain causes flowers to grow, so my word that goes out from my mouth will not return empty, but I will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I was sent. So no, God's word did not fail. The fulfillment of God's word as promised to Abraham is not dependent on the faithfulness of Israelites. And honestly, isn't that a relief? Consider this, if it were dependent on the faithfulness of Israel to bring forth the word to the world... (laughs) (laughs) you already know where I'm going with that (laughs) that it might have been said so that our faithfulness that brought or didn't bring the world uh, the word to our loved ones but that isn't the case it's all on God and God hasn't failed Paul assures us that parking yourself in a garage doesn't make you a car basically well he puts it a little differently (laughs) he says for all who descend from Israel are not truly Israel just because you park yourself in a garage don't make you a car That's the idea there. Nor are all the children of Abraham's true descendants. Rather, through Isaac, your descendants will be counted. This means it's not, Paul explains it, this means that not the children of the flesh who are children of God, rather, children of promise who are counted as descendants. This is the apostle's way of using a history lesson to remind his audience that being a seed of Abraham doesn't automatically mean one is guaranteed the blessings that Paul's already listed. Does it automatically guarantee it for us? No. Right? For this is the promise declared. About a year from now, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our ancestor, Isaac. All right? So Paul lays this whole conundrum out before us. Even before they were born or had done anything good or bad. And again, oftentimes we read that and say, hey, they hadn't done anything good or bad. You shouldn't have rejected Esau. You should have waited to see if he would have been a bad guy or not. (laughs) Well, on the same logic, you should have done the same thing for Jacob. You didn't know. So that's the point. The point is, it isn't based on me if I'm going to do anything good or bad. That's the point. So we read it and go, hey, it's like, well, apply that same standard to you then. (laughs) You don't get saved based on anything you've done, good or bad. You get saved. Why? Faith in God. You get saved because of God and you have faith in God. You believe, you have saving faith. That's what makes the difference. Why? So that God's purpose in election would stand, not by works, but by his calling, not because he called you, I'm going to pick you way out there in the future. That's not the idea of calling. The calling is our, our calling in life, our purpose in life. 
It is said to her, the older will serve the younger. And this again, this is should be us going, that's cool. But oftentimes you read this and say, hey, older's going to serve the younger? No. Who made the rule older will serve the younger and really pushed in on that? Us, our traditions. God can pick whoever he wants. Otherwise, he wouldn't have jumped through all of Jacob's sons all the way down to Judah, who I think is like number four. He should have picked Reuben, who is number one, by the rule. But what does God say? Nope, 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 nope. It's going to go on my grace. So yes, firstborn is important. But the only perfect firstborn that deserved to be picked was who? The answer is Jesus this time. It's Jesus. Yes, Jesus. Good job. <laughs> the only perfect firstborn one. The only one. All right. So do all things work together for good? No. No, they don't. Do all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose? Yes. Is there anything you can do to earn your salvation? No. Thank God. God does not save. He doesn't save us according to our merits. Now listen, so God doesn't condemn us according to our demerits. Both have to be true. God doesn't save us according to our merits, and he doesn't condemn us according to our demerits. Now probably you don't remember demerits until you, you know, if you were in junior high, maybe you had demerits, but this, I tried to word that so it'll work together there, so junior high. Thank God that's not how it works. Thank God that we have a God that's gracious. And thank God, listen, that he has shown who he is. So our response is to do what? Believe him. When someone shows you who they are, what do you do? You believe them. Let's pray. God, you have shown us who you are. Help us to continue to believe that. In light of all of the struggles we go through, all of the challenge we have, facing people who still deny you and how we can bring your love and make it clear to them. Give us that grace, God. Give us the words that we need. But God, most of all, help us to just continue to believe you and who you've said and shown us to be. Thank you, God, for your great sovereignty, your mercy, and your love. We pray that you give us wisdom and insight as we move into this next lesson. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.